everybody. I'm Jordan Tenenbaum, social media manager over here at Saligo, host of the Technology Leaders podcast. I'm joined as always by Mark Simon, my trusty co-host, our vice president of strategy. Hello. And, and today we have Chris Bach, the CSO of Netlify. Chris, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? Thank you. Yeah, Good man. To be here. All good. Great to have you here. Thanks for joining us. We're going to jump right in. Um, so, you know, anyone who's done a deep dive on your LinkedIn sees that you have a pretty, uh, pretty diverse past. But I was wondering if you could talk to us and the listeners uh, a little bit about kind of how you became the CSO at Netlify. What what led you to that uh, position? How'd you get there? Tell us a little bit about your journey. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll do it quick. But yeah, I started way back in the day. Um, setting up computers and office networks and so on back in Copenhagen, Denmark, where I'm from, uh, just to make some money. I, I uh, fell into a movie studio and, and started uh, editing. And it was always an advertisement commercials and uh, became an editor there, worked with film, became a line producer and other things. And uh, later, um, when I went back to university to study uh, film and media science, I, um, I uh, started then a, a company on the side. And it was, uh, uh, I wanted to do more sort of uh, interactive storytelling. I came out of film background. My, uh, my co-founder of that company had a multimedia background. He was sort of the first batch of the flash animators back then. And, uh, and we created this agency, this hybrid agency of, of flash, which was this old animation standard for the web that could employ, um, partial videos, right? So it's not like a big YouTube player. It was more sort of video elements. And we did that in Denmark when it was not a thing. Uh, and, um, uh, so totally betting on a market trend that didn't exist, but you know, we was, I was studying on the side and so on, and then it all blew up. Like, so overnight we, uh, uh, uh it, 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 sort of, everyone wanted one and we were the only game in town. So we ended up with sort of, I think nine out of the 10 largest agencies as clients and by then 19 out of the 20 largest companies. And I did a lot of bells and whistles for a long time. Um, I wanted to get closer. To the metal right um and, and by that i mean like i wanted to have more strategic impact be closer to clients uh make sure that whatever we were doing wasn't just about winning awards but also moving market shares and, and, and so on right so i ended up selling it to a full service agency and as part of the merger I became the chief digital officer and i was working there when my uh, uh, uh co-founder of netlify whom i've known since high school uh, uh matt uh, he was already in san francisco and and he reached out to me um back almost 10 years ago now uh, the first time he was reaching out right with this notion that he had gone and become cto of the largest web agency in spain they were doing 20 websites a day so you can imagine how many people that involves and and that you need to build an internal machine right like you need freelance designers to plug into that and everyone else and so you end up with essentially a fully hosted wordpress right uh, or something to that extent a content management system and so uh, when the crisis hit in 08, they were like, why don't we take this? We've already built the system, make it as a standalone system and sell that as software as a service to other agencies. We came to San Francisco with that. And that's when he sort of noticed that regardless of you're choosing one content management system or this common solution or, or Sitecore, whether it's enterprise or not, the, the layer underneath it, the architecture layer uh, was, was starting to suffer, right? We were all sort of, dealing with, with the notion that, hey, maybe we'll end up with the web in, in walled gardens, right? There was sort of Facebook pages and 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 the kind of, of, of the like like that. And mobile had exploded, come out of nowhere, and all of a sudden it was a huge part of everyone's world, right? And mobile was, of course, driven by apps more than websites, right? 
And what Matt was taught, approached me around was what I thought was the premise of doing business online actually had a root cause. And that was all tied into the fact that in a simplistic way, we can say that the legacy web runs as monoliths. That means that if you have a website, right, you're running that on a computer somewhere, on a singular server, right? And then everyone that visits, visits from a browser, and the server will render a whole version of that website and send it to you back, right? And that means computing for every visitor, which means it's not very scalable, which is why back then we always had the slash start effect, or if a startup came on a wide, uh, you know, hacker news and made it to the front page, those 15 minutes of, of we're here, everyone was, well, you just got a lot of 502s because you couldn't get through. And um, it's, it's, in other words, it wasn't fast or scalable enough. And I'm what I always like to tell the story that when Steve Jobs presented the iPhone for the first time, it's a, you know, of course in a, in a PDF, all those icons, they were links to apps, oh, sorry, to websites, right? The notion of apps didn't exist. It was only when we collectively found out that pulling in the UI every time we're gonna turn a page wouldn't scale. Phones weren't fast enough, program weren't fast enough. So we end up with this notion that, that why don't we pre-build that application and then have the phone's operating system run it and execute it. And then of course, if you have Spotify, you're not gonna have all the music in the world. So you're gonna need some of the content from somewhere else. But essentially it's, we decoupled those two things. And, and, and Matt Nozno was sort of like trying to think of the same for the web. And we already had Git come up, right? When, when he started WebPub, you know, the most common feature request was FTP access. Like no one knows what that means, right? Like five years later, right? It was all about Git, but also JavaScript had become very mature and the browser, very key, had become a full-fledged operating system. It used to be a document viewer, right? And then lastly, you had the API economy. Everything is an API. It's beautiful, right? You, you're not going to run your own payment gateway. Of course not. You're going to speak to Stripe or PayPal or whatever, right? And, and use that. Um, and you can have your first party uh, microservices as well running. And so the need for the website to run everything was going away. And it also, if you looked at it from other points of view, it, it was it was really time for a change because in that world, if I choose, let's say I'm a marketing coordinator and I weigh in and I say, well, I like this way of, of, of you know editing my content. That's great, right? But that would lead to a choice of software that would also dictate the template engine, the build tool, the, the programming language, the server environment, the website output, all of it, right? There's a not decoupled, which doesn't make a lot of sense that the need of a marketing coordinator dictates all the t everything that will go on technically, right? And so what we thought was that, hey, if you could decouple the front end from the back end, right? If you can actually pre-build the website uh, uh, to some extent, and uh, you could then have multiple points of origin, you wouldn't have to compute for every visitor. That means that it would be fundamentally faster and more scalable. It would also remove the largest surface area of attack we know, which was the old monoliths running for every visitor, right? Like, of course, from a numbers game, if you have something like Drupal or WordPress, right? There was a lot of automated malware out there knocking on, on doors across the internet saying, hey, if you haven't updated your website for a week or two, we'd love to infect it, right? So that decouplement makes sense. But as, as we dove in, it made even more sense in the fact that when I started, like my pains were often that, you know, where you have control as an agency, but I would say the same for most marketing departments and anyone really, producing websites is very often in the strategy, in the communication, in my design and my front end. But then I had to send it off for implementation wherever that was. If you're lucky, you get, you know, they make some tickets three months later, you get something back and 
and I'm not sure if anyone is old enough to remember, but it didn't look like what you sent to them, right? And you're like, oh, I have to take a, a screenshot of the PSD, make it semi-transparent, you know, <laughs> and like go and, and hold it over the side and see that's, see, that's not the same font. Like no one will notice. The client will notice. I, let's just, let's just <laughs> assume they will, right? And, and so in, in essence, that was because your, your front end, your digital experience, your UI had to be part of that singular backend. Right, so it has to be implemented into it. Now, in the new world, it would be decoupled. So that means that I could push that digital experience live, and then it would just pull in information from the back end, pull in from these headless APIs, and doing it that way meant that there's no implementing into. And so, what that meant for my time to market and my control and my quality was huge. Right, so I got really excited about that. And then the last thing is, at that point, I had sat with very large uh, 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 clients that, you know, some of the biggest companies out there that, that were, um, uh, you know, that had these very big marketing software clouds, right? They're also called like digital experience platforms that would have your CMS and your uh, builder, you know, your website builder, it would have your commerce, it would have uh, analytics and a bunch of others pulled into one thing. And, and I saw these enterprises really struggle with saying, well, you know, we need to go to a multilingual, right? Like, because we need that over here. The system doesn't support it. So I guess we are, we're spending the next five years building out an animal and reporting all the content, you know, feature freezing. And then 18 months later, you're live with something. That's painful, right? And that was because, again, it was all locked in. You, you want to change one thing, you have to change all of it. And in this new world, because the output wasn't a UI, right? Because it could stand alone as a headless API, I could see at length, this decouplement could lead to this composable uh, workflow that Gartner talks about today, right? This notion that you can mix and match different components, right? Which also makes so much more sense to do that when you have more, more needs. Because remember back then we had limited services and we had one or two digital touch points. Now we have thousands of services and 20 digital touch points, right? So having one monolith built equally well for all of them is also almost impossible, right? And so this notion that you can mix and match and therefore gradually update your tech stack. So you keep having something that's current and solving your needs and, and a fast enough time to market rather than, you know, having something that seems relatively fit for a few years. And then you go into the six, seven years where it's, oh, I wish we, you know, we could do something else, but, uh, but we already invested so much, the sunk cost, cost fallacy, right? And, and so all of this made me super bullish, right? Okay. There's a real thing to solve for. But of course, it also made us think, why isn't everyone doing this, right? Like this is, this doesn't make any sense. Like this is a fundamentally better way to build, no matter who you are, how you look at it. Um, and there was two reasons. One, there was no ecosystem. And two, there was, um, there was no workflow, right? And so when you don't have the glucose, we don't have a monolith that has all that stuff under the hood that you never think about, of how everything fits together, how it's published and hosted and all those things. All of a sudden, you needed sort of a platform that could take these components, plug, plug it into a developer workflow with mm -hmm. unified release management, and then distribute it out and, and, uh, and take advantage of this notion of having multiple points of origin and so on. And all of that had to be automated because there was too many moving parts. And of course, we can't build the ecosystem. We need the ecosystem to do that. But we could build that, that workflow platform. And so that's why we founded Netlify. And then since then, today, we are yeah, a CSD company. Um, we have around four and a half million businesses and developers on the platform. 
Uh, they run around uh, 35 million sites, stores, and apps. Um, but also the ecosystem has, and it's, it's hard to know exactly, right? But at least 3,500 companies instead of the two when we started. And that's because even like there's so many new services. If you look at anyone that has done an e-commerce service in the last three years or four years, you know, like it's it's headless natively, right? It's composable, it's mm -hmm. built in this way. Um, but also all the existing large providers, they saw that, hey, either we innovate and we and we go headless and we composable, even if it does mean being a little less sticky, or that we're just not going to be chosen and we're going to be obsolete in a few years, right? So, so if you look at Gartner, for example, you know, composable was a thing in 2020, but it was, yeah, you know, it was a few percent. Now they said that here in 2023, in January, so so in the beginning of the year, it said 70% of all enterprises, according to Gartner, would build with this technology, uh, this architecture this year. So in other words, it's really, really happened. Um, and yeah, today, Netlify really focuses on the, the large organizations that have to do this at scale. So they're not just talking about one greenfield project. They're more talking about how does this new architecture fit together with all the old architecture. So we sort of expanded our workflow story to 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 um, also wrap around the legacy stacks and so on, but specializing completely in the digital experiences, which is why it's fun to be on this podcast as well, because I think a lot of that idea of, of saying what we do is we automate the pain away. Right. The traditional way of building a website would be now I'm done with my my, my friend end, and then, you know, you have uh, a system administrators and they have a ticket, their own sprints. Right. So spin up staging environments. And you have the same for database environments. And then you have your varnish caching, your DevOps people, you have your infrastructure engineers. And we're not even talking about QA steps and security scans. And that's why it takes four months to move the blue block from here to here. Right. It's not because it takes four months, but it's because like every one of those have sprints and ticket systems and so on. And for us, it's not that we take over that as a managed service, not at all. It's that it's completely automated away. It's not like we sit and do it for you. It's because all that operational orchestration and infrastructure has become code. And so it's really saying, hey, to those developers, spend your time not on maintenance and on running and this kind of operation and orchestration, but on building out the parts. And I would bet, uh, Mark, that that part of the value add uh, uh, is, is pretty probably pretty close and, and similar for Celigo, right? In, in, in what you mm -hmm. all do. But of course, in another end of the stack, but this notion of saying, hey, these parts should be automated. Let us do that for you. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting. Various through very different parts of, of an organization where we're solving a very sim similar problem, which yeah. you know, we think of it a little bit more, we're more maybe on the on the business process and business application side, yeah. but a modern business has evolved their system, a, a, a modern business's system stack has evolved to be hundreds of SaaS applications surrounding maybe exactly. the, and the older they are, maybe there's legacy stuff at the core. Uh, if they're a more modern organization, probably like yours, certainly like Saligo, I know, because I know our inside, we're born in the cloud. And so we we don't have anything that's non-cloud, but it's still, we have, we have, you know, I'm sure your organization has hundreds of SaaS apps you're using, um, just oh, yeah. like us. And so a modern business is that composable, the, the business, the, it's one, it really needs to be one system. If it feels like multiple, you don't have a successful, and yeah. that's really what we do is help bring those composable pieces, all those different SaaS apps together into one system. And, and you, my take here is really at Netlify, you're, you're doing that from a, from a digital experience 
for those organizations exactly. and bringing those composable pieces together into a single single experience. But really, exactly. similar concept, just applied very in in two very different ends of the exactly. The yeah, one hundred percent right. That's exactly it. So yeah, that's uh, go, go ahead, ahead, Jordan. Well, I was going to say it's it's interesting because the, it's two ends of the spectrum that are kind of opposite, but also kind of overlapping, which um that's just interesting to even hear how business can be applied in, in that manner but I, i'm i'm curious we deal with integrations a ton at Soligo, and i mean we sell them we we build them we maintain them um mm -hmm. and, and i know netlify deals with them too and so i'm kind of mm -hmm. in interested if, if you could talk a little bit chris about um how you guys deal with build maintain integrations and then from there mark i'm wondering if you could kind of uh comment on Soligo's methodology with building maintaining um integrations and i want to see if they're kind of that same similar but different um so i'm, I'm wondering if you could go first chris and then mark maybe you could provide some yeah absolutely yeah i mean it's so so from our point of view right it's it's really about those digital experiences right whatever ends up being consumed by ui somewhere right and um and then saying, hey, you're gonna have as an enterprise, just like Mark said, right? You're not gonna, the privilege of just having one system to fit it all is, is, is not there, right? Like you're gonna have a lot. We work with some companies that have like four to 600 brands in 200 countries, and they're <laughs> closing in on 100,000 unique digital excuses a year. So mm -hmm. it, it becomes, never mind the individual systems. Yeah. Let's talk about how do they fit together? How do we provide common workflows for them, right? And then we 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 I ultra focus on that on that part that makes up the orchestration operations and so on of the the digital experiences. So the way it would work is as I mentioned before, right? There is that notion of running all that traditional infrastructure um, and all those processes to to create uh, you know a live production of of, a, of let's say a website, right? And, and an interesting one there is uh, just a little stat there. And on average, our enterprise clients, we sort of got those numbers recently. Um, they deploy to production once per week, which is a lot better than once a month or, or once a quarter, which it used to be not, not long ago, right? And on, on average with Netlify, it's 28 times a day. And that's even if we, that's after we remove all the outliers because we have some that's thousands of times, right? Um, and I wish I could say it was because our software is 150 times faster. That would be really cool. <laughs> but but in reality, it's just because all those extra steps that used to, again, have these tickets and, and the manual oversight and so on, right? They've been automated, right? Like, And if you think about how modern um, deployments go, uh, you, you, like, you just push your code to get, and there is no step after that. We automate it. We bring you back uh, an infinite, you know, there's infinite staging environments in that way. You just get a URL, right, that you can play around with. Um, and every time you do that, you know, you're using those plugins to to uh, use AI to see if, if, uh, if uh, you know, why you built would have failed if there was an error there. You're using, uh, you know, security scans like Snake.io and so on, right? You're using um, uh, continuous uh, code quality monitoring like from Digma or whatever it might be. But, but this continuous everything, this idea that it's not an end state. It's something I want to do throughout, which also means that that individual developer is presented with whatever needs fixing and optimizing at the very beginning rather than a team uh, that's different that gets in the very end right so all of that really drastically reduces time to market and that opens the door for doing a lot more experiments and stuff you wouldn't do 
if it took all those weeks to go live. Um, but but that workflow and and having uh, a global multi uh, multi cloud uh, application delivery network where we. I mean, we sit in the marketplaces of AWS and GCP and so on, right? Um, so it's not that we're an interest. We, we piggyback on those data points that's provided from uh, of, of those points of presence that are provided from from those cloud providers. Um, but then we are able to create this this workflow where all of that just becomes automated away. There is no caching header. Basically, it's set by default by upfront, right? And it's and it's always as fast as it can be. Um, so so there's a workflow in that that we provide. Then there's the layer on top, which really is this this uh, uh, developer workflow where they need something that really automates into Git. They need a unified release management, right? And you also need, when you have this and you have all these different things that are, maybe you have more than one CMS and you have common systems and so on, right? Where are your sources of truth? If you're seeing something locally in a CMS, for example, in a previewer, well, if that hasn't been built out and pulled in all the other things and you don't have a real URL at the end of it, are you sure that what you're seeing is what you're going to get? And so, in that workflow, we also have uh, the port preview commenting where that staging environment has a visible overlay uh, that automatically integrates into Asana and Trello and GitHub and all these things where you can now type directly what it is you want changing, right? So, so that becomes part of the workflow that extends a little further than the developer. And then there's really this, this notion, this layer of, of what we call the Netlify Connect, if you look at its product, it's, but, but it's complete sort of integrated part of the platform really. And that's the notion where you're saying, well, you have all these content sources, right? And and some of them, like, you know, they really need to come through uh, a unified layer. They need to be readily accessible for a digital experience. So they don't, you're not waiting like uh, 20 seconds to get that information from an old CRM or something, right? You want to you wanna make sure that that's cached. Um, and you want to make sure that they can wrap around your legacy stacks as much as your modern ones, right? And so, so, and that combined really is that Netlify experience. That's all the orchestration, right? And we also have uh, added uh, uh, what's called Netlify Create. This is part of this now as a, as a new layer, which is really, to be honest, relevant only when you have multiple systems. And that's because you have visual editing. And whenever I say visual editing, people think, oh, we've solved that 25 years ago. Absolutely. But we always solved it as part of one system. And in the composable world, you're saying, well, my marketing department, right? If they need to uh, rethink how they're going to create sites and so on, whenever we change the system, and my whole point is that I want to be able to use all of them and not, for example, have to constantly migrate everything over to the system and set everything finished up before I can start using it. Well, then you would really need to abstract that layer away. So that's a visual editing layer that works across all your different content management systems, right? It doesn't do the content modeling. You still need a CMS if you need a CMS. That's not our job. But we've sort of sliced out that layer of orchestration, if you will, uh, so the visual editors have a, a tool that will work across all these different content uh, sources. Because if you don't, well, then you have the pragmatic challenge of saying, if you want to fully utilize this, you would need sort of have to, to have 20 of them, right? And, and that's not how it really works. So you would just choose the one. So all of this is really sort of different sides and angles of, of how these things are tied together. Um, and so in our world, when it comes to modern web experiences, modern digital experiences, the truth is you need to go out and find best in class components that fits your need, right? And just even if you slice out commerce, there's so many different angles. There's the, you know, deep enterprise full service versions of commerce tools. There's commerce layer or something like that that will really split out and focus on the transactional mm -hmm. layer. 
uh, again, you'll often have, well, I have all this functionality in my legacy system and in this world where I don't have to change everything. Actually, I love this part. Could I keep, keep that place? And then supplement with these parts over here that wasn't working very well, right? And, and so our job is not to provide any of those components. It is just like your job is not to provide like, you know, the HubSpots or the Salesforce, but to make sure mm -hmm. that you automate processes yeah. of tickets coming across and it's not the same thing. So in our world, it would be that, that you can just plug those in freely and then everything else is, is taken care of, right? So the operations of it, the orchestration of it is, is provided by us. And then the components is provided by yourself or, or your vendors. Okay. That, Chris, that makes a lot of sense. And it really sounds like Net, Netlify becomes the, the glue for that digital experience. You're, you're, you're providing that, exactly. that, that mesh that, yep. that's holding everything together. Yeah. And, and I'm curious a little bit with that type of scenario, how that changes. If you think of like a, a traditional or, well, there's been a lot of evolutions. You started talking about the story and it brought me, brought me back to some things I hadn't thought about a long time, like flash and, and, and doing, yeah. and building, doing a lot of web develop, you know, dynamic web development back in the, in the late nineties and stuff and thinking about how that's evolved. You know, <laughs> when we think about what, what, you know, the de even the definition of what's a traditional web development team and, and what that yeah. stack it's changed so much, but let's say, yeah. Where most companies are right now, where maybe they're, you know, in, in the mid-market and lower, they're often using a WordPress. Other companies, they're using mm -hmm. some framework of some kind with a, with a, maybe a, a, a scripting layer. They haven't really migrated to headless. Someone's, someone's on this sort of mm -hmm. more traditional paradigm. And you think of that team, how that involved, because you've got these different layers in yeah. the team, right? You've still got, you've still got back-end developers. You've got, mm -hmm. you've got these front-end specialists who, you know, become real, especially JavaScript specialists. You've got creatives. You've got all this coming together on that team. Mm -hmm. And, how does the makeup of that team shift? Say if I've got a company and I've got my, my web team and now I'm going to say, you know what, I'm going to move to the new world. I want, I want to, I want to go yeah. where things are going. I want to adopt Netlify. How does my team change? How does the makeup and the, and the weighting of, 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 a, of a team change with, with those given roles? No, it's, it's, it's a very good question, right? It's the right question. And it's something I spend a lot of time with. I feel like, if it's when we sit with with large enterprises and organizations that are moving over then that change management is always a central part of the story yeah. right and and very often we'll be working with SIs and so on like that specialized consultants that come in and and, and help making those changes and facilitate that um but but i think in essence at core it means that developers that are building out those apis and and are making those those you know uh, compiling the code for for <laughs> compiling what needs to be done for building out the website before it's actually built and, and distributed by us. Uh, those you get more of, and then anyone that was associated with the operations, right? Spinning up staging environments and caching, mm -hmm. there's infrastructure engineers like the DevOps and, and system administrators, they get to spend their time on stuff that's more, uh, that, that that's less about uh, keeping the lights on and more about building out new uh, uh, functionality that will create business value. Um, and mm -hmm. so, I think what changes there, and I remember one of the early ones, there was an agency up in Portland and uh, the, the, the technical director, um, he was also an author of an open source tool in our space. Um, um, so he, he really understood what was happening. And I think he, he had a team of about 35 people. And, I, and as far as I remember, something like 29 of them were, you know, would be in the, in the, in the, in the backend bucket. And then once they transversed to doing this way, I think 31, 
were front-end or developers building out projects, right? And only uh, four of them were back-end because they didn't really need a lot, right? Like they were doing yeah. campaign sites and so on. And for that, there wasn't any back-end, right? Um, and if there was, it was it was something that was a standalone service that you could just plug yep. in. There was not a lot of operation and maintenance involved in it. And so I think like the change management often becomes that that what you're spending on 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 your infrastructure and oper operating it is is what's being migrated away, right? And I would imagine maybe seeing a little bit of the same in the legal. So my my theory, like to 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 spin on that a little bit, right? What I'm seeing now is is I would call it the biggest shift since the move from on-prem to cloud in, in our world, right? Mm -hmm. And we went from on-prem to cloud, uh, and you can also argue that's still happening for sure, but it's yeah. going to make a trend for more than a decade, right? And and um, what we did that in, in principle because of scalability, because of multiple to the services, right? So, you know, AWS have all these services, for example, right? And and they can spin up more easy to service than you can. But it was always operations as usual. It's like a Home Depot. You're coming, yeah. you're getting your building blocks, right? But you have to, oh, an outside consultancy, someone has to take those building blocks and build something with it and optimize it and, uh, you know, upgrade it and operate it and so on. And I think you're going to see CIOs within a couple of years. And I also think that this plays into to what AI is coming in and, and, and doing, right? Where a CIO is going to say, like, one of our goals for that the, the, this coming year is going to be, Let's not run to the extent possible our own infrastructure clouds. I mean, and I don't mean by our own mm. as, as an alternative to a GCP or AWS, but just building on those building blocks. That's what I'm seeing something like Netlify being uh, uh, able to abstract away. Of course, we do it for the digital experiences, right? And there's other parts of, of the IT stacks as well, right? But for, for that is really that value add, right? And so, if you look as a company, as a CIO or CIO, for example, right, when I have those conversations, they're looking at this and saying, well, this is the biggest budget spend, right? Most mm -hmm. business problems, they have digital solutions. If yeah. I look to what goes into this, it's massive, right? I just had a conversation uh, uh, last week with someone that said that out of their $125 million budget, uh, 85 of them just went to keeping the lights on because they had so much legacy tech and there was just so much overhead and resources in, in running this, right? That is nonsensical. That should stop and it can't stop, right? And that's our mission. And I would imagine it's a joint mission because a lot of that is also what I see as, as yours, value add, right? Um, but but of course, that has big changes and implications for that organization, right? Those people that, that were now don't have to operate in the same way. Well, if you ask any company like that, any IT department, do you have a list of things you would like to do if you didn't spend all your time here? That's this long list, right? And that's all, often where all that value add is, but you don't have time for it because you're trying to make sure that the the card house doesn't crumble, right? So so at the end of the day, I often mm -hmm. see that, hey, like this is just a win, right? Because now you're able to utilize these people in a much, much better way. But yeah, yeah management exactly. is a big Yeah, and that, that really resonates. What you just said, we haven't talked about the, the, the CIO backlog is something we we talk mm -hmm. a lot to CIOs about. They've got yeah. this, this automation backlog. They, they know they keep adding yes. apps. It's hard to say no to solve these problems, but then they add them. Yeah and they don't get integrated or the integration is reactionary automation becomes reactionary yeah. instead of leading with automation yeah. and so that that backlog yeah. it it's it's like being on a on a hamster wheel because they're the team's trying to connect everything and build it as yeah. fast but if you're using legacy tools and it's and you're focusing so much of the team's time on keeping the lights on 
if you will, right? Especially if they're using more legacy coded approaches or some legacy, very code intensive tools, you, you're you not focusing on really the, the crux of that work is often the business process side. So you're not, you're not putting as, it, I mean, that's the, that's the bottleneck, but you've got so much effort going into the dev and now by using more modern tools, you can shift. And, and that was what really stood out to me when you described the shifting of those teams going from having having way more front end developers mm-hmm. and far fewer back end developers because if i'm going to step back and i'm yeah. i'm going to be a business leader and i'm going to say my web presence i'm concerned about the business a- a- a impact of my web yeah. presence how is it communicating my message exactly. with the experience it's giving my customers and partners and i don't care about the back end like a CEO yep. or the CMO or the, the and mm-hmm. the, you literally don't care as long as it works and it's and it meets certain requirements and until it doesn't yep. literally it's it, it, there's no yep. uh, there's really no business appreciation for because it, it's 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 irrelevant to the business goal but yep. yet it's so critical for meeting those goals but if you tell me that yep. I can have ninety percent of my team if I'm a CIO trying to meet the needs of, of the yeah. the rest of the company, you tell me that 90% of my team can now be focused on the front end on, on the user experience to deliver that experience. I mean, that to me is like, that's, that's, that's the same value proposition we have. We're like, Oh, we can, we can involve the business technologists that are, that are involved on the front yeah. lines instead of having to re- rely on developers. It's the same thing. And, and it's, and I wonder if you yeah. see the same effect on organizations where you now see an accelerate, we see an acceleration of automation, meaning they're doing more, it grows to the organization. They, they um, connect things more quickly. Everything starts working better. It kind of becomes a snowball. Do you see the same thing from a, from a user yeah. expense and experience and like a maturity of the digital experience? Yeah. Absolutely. hundred percent. Right. I think the, the, the CIO and CEOs that often like the, the, the big things that we're helping with is, faster time to market and then reducing that overhead right yeah um and if if we talk to some like there's different roles right but if, if i look at uh, you know an e-commerce manager uh, or talk to them or or a cmo for example right then performance is a huge part of it right all of yeah. a sudden you have these things that are global by default and yeah. and has time to first by milliseconds right and that that means the world for conversion right i mean like speed oh. is just it's, it's such a basic part. We've known it for 25 years. I mean, it's not, not a new concept. We've always known. I remember the early Amazon and Google and Yahoo reports um, that are more than a decade old, like they came out, right? And, and and just said like, what does a hundred millisecond and extra times the first byte mean, right? And that it's hugely important, right? Mm-hmm. So they they get that. But it's the, the time to market. It's, I spoke to the CMO uh, from a large financial institution and they had a self-service product that did billions, right? That's 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 really significant. Wow. Right? So that's credit card forms, right? And and uh, he 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 told me that they had a forty-five second combined load time, forty-five seconds, right? And we're talking about Deloitte Digital coming out saying that a hundred milliseconds, a tenth of a second, can mean eight yeah. percent conversions yeah. to the rate change, right? So forty-five seconds, and of course, it's because regulations require that you put in a lot of different information and so on. But the reason I'm bringing it up is because he said, even with that his number one challenge was time to market. Like he sat on these very, well, I'm not gonna name any names, but uh, you know, on, on monolithic providers. And he said like, everything touches each other. Like I can't, I can't move, I'm stuck in molasses, right? I wanna change this one thing. And for the reasons we talked about earlier, mm-hmm. it takes me four months to do it. Which also means that all the optimization, all the smaller experiments, 
I don't have time to do that at all. Or it doesn't even make sense to do a small tweak in a, a color of a call to action button and then seeing the results four months later because so much else has to change with new campaign updates and all these things. Unless I can do it more or less real time, like it really has to go fast, it's, it's not, it, it stops being meaningful, right? And you start seeing a lot of people doing less personalization for the same reasons, which makes no sense. We've all known that A-B testing and personalization is one-on-one -on -one best practice, but the pragmatic reality is that that the time to market is, is, a, is it, it, you know, stops that, right? So I think if you get that performance boost of just having something that's plain and simple, really, really fast loading, and then you get that sort of, hey, I automated all these other steps so you can now start uh, publishing all the time to production, then it's then it's fun to be them, right? Um, you still need the right components, yeah. right? You still need the right headless APIs. It's, yeah. it's not a thing that stands alone, but from a workflow point of view, that's where the value really lies. Yeah, Chris, and I think that that time to value and that being able to move quickly, and if it takes too long, now you can't even follow best practices. The 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 A/B testing, the iterative approach, and having led an e-commerce company before, it's often you 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 think of these big technology projects as being the ones that are going to affect the most change. And the reality was you got the most change from the little things from, from evolving this, 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 the evolution, this sort of trial and error of evolution of doing these little things, testing it, did it work? Did it not? Okay. We got a 10th of a percent of a yeah. conversion. Well, when you're talking, when, when you're talking about millions of dollars, potentially a day that's a, that's exactly. a big deal I, that, that's that's a massive yeah. impact and so you look at these things and then you evolve this and it's all it's the sum yeah. total of of a series of small changes that together evolving yeah. in a direction that if you sat down and you try to try to come up with this magical vision that magical vision is almost never right it might get you pointed mm -hmm. directionally correct yeah. but it's the rest of that evolution and if you can't do that it, like if, if if an organization yeah. can't make those changes and they find like well we can't tune this and if you if you find that you can't tune and, and that really it doesn't matter whether it's the website it doesn't matter whether it's their business systems or accounting software anything if you're yeah. in a situation where you're like i can't i don't feel like i can tune anything because i'm worried it's going to break or it's going to take too long that's a that's a fundamental i mean that is a massive signal that you're going to fall behind yeah. I, right because other companies leading companies can we see that i know you're seeing that yeah. they're they're getting yeah. they're really like well we have to stay agile and i think that agility if i look back yeah. over the last few years it's been the biggest thing that's been hammered home is oh, can yeah. you be agile or can you not and if you can't you're going to succeed yeah. and and we see the current economic pressures and that only uh accelerates it honestly um i agree 100 so speaking of agility it seems like one and we talk about ai on this podcast pretty frequently so i'm mm -hmm. feeling obligated to bring it up but it seems like ai is something that enhances agility for businesses oh. for brands for individuals uh, whether it's someone like me who's kind of doing more marketing side or even you know uh, engineers and 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 people who are coding and things like that so i'm kind of curious mm -hmm. i want to combine two questions what's what's next in terms of netlify in terms of what you're developing, maybe it's it's you know a product, maybe it's a release coming out, or maybe just a vision in general. And uh, if so, does AI tie into that at all? Yeah, absolutely. So I mean, AI is, is a big thing, right? So so we were just having our offsite this week, and we we're also talking about it, right? Because I'm a little, 
I think there's a lot of companies right now that are coming in and they're leading with I. It's almost like a buzzword, right? Where, it, you know, it used to be Web3 or something else, right? And I think in six months, you're going to see a lot of sort of people mm-hmm. saying, well, actually that a one AI product they had sort of didn't create any value. Maybe it just created overhead, right? But it had AI in the title, right? Um, Sounded good. So I'm a little cautious of that. I think when, when, it, when it comes to, uh, when it comes to, uh, to AI, uh, there's, there's several points of view. Like one is that, if, when I talk to, to to companies and CEOs and CEOs again to talk about that that part of the, of, of of our audience, right? Um, it's like I would say ninety seven percent is actually not about new functionality. It's about abstraction, right? It's about automating something that used to be manual, right? Then of course there's also those things that come out that truly sort of us now we can do this. So we have enough compute power. We have whatever to be able to do something that truly didn't exist already, or bring in a new standard or something like that, right? And in the web space, that definitely some things that could happen there. Um, but but the, the vast majority is about like automation, really. So it's a complete mm-hmm. extenuation of what we've already been doing, right? Which is abstracting, automating things away. Now for us, it's it's uh, very important that we are good and can have qualified, you know, with our CISO, our head of legal and so on, has spent a lot of time really understanding how does this work for enterprises? When can you leave in? When can you, what, what, what data are you share? How uh, are you sharing? How you can compartmentalize this and so on, right? So there's a whole side of AI there that's very important. And then when it comes to our services, it's a very big thing. So we have a number of, of uh, uh, actual products and add-ons coming out that are completely AI driven, but already now there's tons of it, right? So if you use our documentation, you can just ask and it'll come up with a, with a, um, uh, with answers, right? Um, that are contextual and everything, right? Inside the product, we're adding a lot of smart functionality um, and uh, it's almost uh, uh, coming out the door. So we just had the presentation a bunch of stuff yesterday. So we're quite excited about that. But I would say, generally speaking, um, it has to further that mission, right? And then the last part, which I think is really uh, interesting and and important in our space, and I'm, I'm curious to hear what it looks like in your space, but when I see, I speak to startups every day. Also, I think I sit on, quite a number of advisory boards and a ton of angel investments because we were so dependent on an ecosystem growing up around us that we've been heavily involved in that since the very beginning. But I, I get pitched daily with, with different AI solutions, right? And if you, for example, look at the front end frameworks and, and the AI agents in that space and whether that is going to really come from the design tools, right, of them being native code as well and how that whole process is, I would say the only thing as an enterprise that you can be sure of is that you can't pick a winner today. Like it's simply like there's thousands of bits and it might not be any of them, right? And so in my world, it's really important that you're setting yourself up to be able to take a component and use it uh, with as little friction as possible and then discontinue it if you have to use something else. It's much more important than trying to find that right agent or the right model today because it most likely isn't it. Uh, And so if you're double clicking on that, and, and you're locking yourself in, you, there's going to be real trouble, probably like in three months, because it's extremely iterative right now, which is exciting. I love it, right? And, uh, and, and, I, and I do see that our mission of abstracting these things that we're automating away, they're only being supercharged. We only move so much faster in our services to our clients with AI. But it's not my job to come with an AI product to the client. It's my job to, my job, Netlify's job, to use AI to make it, uh, to make the services they need of check this out of my way, right? Or help me do this as good as possible. AA is sort of a tool rather than an end result, which I think in these hype times is sometimes confused a little bit. Um, 
And then Netlify's job is really to provide the right plumbing, the right infrastructure, the right operational orchestration for use to use all these different components rather than saying it has to be a specific one of them. So, so there's different angles here, but that's sort of from a helicopter point of view, how we think about it. That's awesome. Thank you. I, I appreciate you kind of clarifying the nuances there. Cause yeah, I think, I think some people kind of just uh, splat AI on the wall and it, it, there's, like you said, there's a lot more nuance to it. Um, so we got about five minutes left and I, I don't want to uh, take up too much of your time, Chris. Um, Mark, before I kind of uh, wrap things up, any any last minute questions or, or comments or, or anything that you'd like to go over with Chris? Well, you know, Jordan, I think Chris and I could sit here and we could talk about this stuff uh, pretty much all day. So uh, yeah. let alone if, if we had a couple of beers involved. So uh, I, th I think I think we've got, uh, you know, I think we covered a lot here and, and I, I really love these synergies between thinking about the way around yeah. the between both the ways that we're approaching automation for organizations mm -hmm. from different directions. And, and I really like thinking about that because there's there's multiple vectors that companies have to be thinking about this. And for me, this actually gives me one, this actually filled in something in my my thinking, especially having been had web, uh, web development teams in the past and kind of moving away from it over the last several years. I'm like, wow, this is where it's going. This fits in really nicely to be like, Okay, this is the modern automated paradigm for that. Mm -hmm. And we think about like and and I think we're we're all collectively trying to evolve and, and create this vision of what's the what's the modern digital enterprise look like and what are all mm -hmm. the pieces that fit in to create a completely automated as as much as possible uh or organization. And it's not it's it's not defined. It's just like you were saying, Chris, all these with AI, AI is a component mm -hmm. of that. There's a there's a whole area there and it kind of adds as a the layer, but it's mm -hmm. it's still evolving. We're trying to figure that out. Um, so I, for me, this has kind of helped fill in part of that picture really well. Um, but I, I, I don't I don't have any more questions because I I I, I, I got to stop myself somewhere. So <laughs> we'll stop here. Well, I'll say two things. One, as a in, in this podcast particular, um, being an observer, it's very cool to see the cusp of what you were mentioning, Mark. Kind of the future of. Um, Kind of technology and, and what's going to be next on the frontier um so I, I just feel very privileged to be able to to listen to you guys and um I, i'd say the second thing that this brings up is obviously chris we'd love to have you back on the podcast because uh clearly Thanks. we can talk about this for a long time maybe we'll move it a little bit uh later in the day on a friday and actually have some beers um with that, <laughs> there we go. With that in mind um we got about three minutes, but I always like to ask this just to uh, round out the podcast and make sure that the listeners mm -hmm. understand that you are not just a uh, a robot of technology. But if you could tell the listeners, Chris, a little bit about yourself outside of work, any passions, hobbies, or interests that you uh, oh, that yeah. you care that you're that you're into, and then we'll uh, wrap things up. Very much. I got I got bitten by the the, the bug when I studied film history. So uh, I, I told the geek out on movies, everything from silent movies up to modern action movies and everything in between. So um, I've always been a, yeah, that kind of audiovisual communication stays with me in, in that way. Um, I, uh, I like driving cars. I feel like uh, um, I have ADHD. And so when I'm driving <laughs> on a racetrack, it, it, it totally focuses me and centers oh. me, right? It almost makes me feel calm. And I kind of like that. Uh, and, um, uh, and art. So, so I, I, I love art, going to galleries and museums and researching online and, and uh, uh, yeah, just creative ways of expressing yourself, right? Like art can be so many different things, of course. Uh, but, uh, 
but yeah, the, the you know celebrating and 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 diving into and and researching uh, the, the beautiful things in life is is fun, right? That's fantastic, man. It seems like both you and I have a lot of uh, overlapping interests. That's that's cool to hear. And um, I'm a car nut too, so uh, I'm sure we could do a whole other car <laughs> car podcast without Mark, where, <laughs> where Chris and I could talk a bunch. <laughs> um, let's do a yeah. Let's follow up three podcasts. <laughs> I'm, I'm down. We're we're starting new podcasts here. Um, well, with that in mind, I just want to wrap things up so uh, everyone can get back to the rest of their day. But Chris, thank you so much for being on this podcast to our listeners. Uh, who've made it this far. Thank you for joining us on the Saligo Technology Leaders Podcast. Mark, as always, thanks for being my trusty co-host. Um, Thank you. We'll see you guys in a couple weeks after the holiday break. We have some really fantastic guests lined up. Um, but Chris, thank you so much for joining us and see you, everybody. Bye now. Thank Bye. you. Bye.